This morning is the fourth of a series of messages drawn from the book of Colossians, which uh, Adam has just read to us. That's the particular passage. We'll be taking that apart a little bit uh, as we work through this this morning. Uh, Pastor Kevin began this series, and followed by Dan Brown, and last week by uh, Jacob Heed. And uh, he's, Jacob especially spoke about the preeminence of Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, uh, that in everything he might be preeminent. He holds the highest position, the highest rank. He is above all. He is the head of all. And he is deserving of all. He is preeminent. Now, this the passage we're going to look at may come as a bit of a surprise coming on the wings of Christ's supreme preeminence. Let me just read to you again the first two verses, verses 24 and 25 of Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. and In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And you would expect it a little bit, something more triumphant, victorious, uh, more celebrative. If Jesus is preeminent and he's supreme, then uh, what should you hear from Paul next? Well, he talks about suffering. What? I wasn't expecting that. If Christ is supreme, why is there so much suffering that Paul is speaking about? These two verses seem to bring up some misunderstandings about Christ is preeminent, and we as a believer follow him as Lord. First, that suffering is either supposedly or looked at as a cause of or a co-conspirator to the apparent disconnect between the head and the body. In verse 18, once again, uh, Paul says, and he is the head of the body. He's the head. Well, what's happening to the body? Paul says, again in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Christ is the head, but the body is suffering. You would think that if Jesus is in charge, if he's the head, if he has all wisdom and knowledge, he would do a better job of taking care of his body. We wouldn't expect so much suffering if he's in charge, if he's preeminent. But Paul talks about suffering. And as we'll see, suffering is not the cause for any division or dis distance between the head and the body. Actually, it's the connecting tissue that unites the two. Suffering does that. And we'll see that as we work through this passage. Suffering also seems to be... Uh, blurring the distinction between the saving work of Christ for our sins and the continuing work of Paul for the church. Notice what he says here. It's a kind of a, a strange way of talking about his suffering. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for your sake. What? 
What do you mean he's filling up in his body what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? I thought Christ's work on the cross was complete, that he suffered enough. It seems to suggest that Paul has to do a little bit more. That what Jesus did was a little bit, came short of the mark. Paul has to finish, seal the deal. That Paul is doing a little bit more suffering so that we can be forgiven. Christ started the suffering, but Paul has to finish it. He has to bring it to completion. And that confuses the church. Well, let's unconfuse the church. Paul is not talking about suffering in relationship to atonement. That work is complete. If it were not, then Paul would contradict himself. In verse 19 and 20, Paul has already said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. And he will also say in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. No, the redemptive work, the atonement is complete. No other work needs to be done. Paul can work all day long for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of his life. He will not accomplish anything more than what Christ did at Calvary. So then how do we explain what he said that he fills up in his body what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, think of a hurricane. When a hurricane reaches landfall, it causes all this commotion and devastation. And then it passes. Then in, but in the wake of the hurricane, there's still a disturbance in that weather system because the hurricane has come through. There's still clouds, and there's still rain, and there's still flooding. Now, during the after effects of the storm, you could take a bucket and put it in your backyard, and you could fill it up with all the rain that's left over from the hurricane. What Paul is saying, he's filling up in his body what's left over from the hurricane that struck Calvary. He's not creating the hurricane. He's not completing the hurricane. Whatever was lacking in the hurricane, he's just saying, I am filling up what was left over in the wake of Christ coming to this earth. R.C.H. Lenski describes it this way. He says, I am filling up in my turn my allotment of those leftover afflictions of Christ. It's what's left over. Christ has come, died on the cross, the work is finished, and now he's gone. But in the wake of that, there's still turbulence. There's still continuing hostility. And Paul is part of that. He's, he's taking the brunt of that. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It has everything to do with the continuing witness to the hurricane that is coming down. It also seems to create, suffering creates perhaps this, this two-tiered 
composition of the church. You have the leaders of the church, which Paul is one. He speaks of his ministry and his stewardship of the word of God and his suffering in that regard. Well, what about the rest of us who may not have a present ministry, who are not stewards, who are just, we're just an ordinary Christian. You come on Sunday, you worship, you go home, you've got your own responsibilities and obligations. Uh, you may pray for the church, give to the church, attend a life group, but you're not in a position of leadership. You're not in charge, so how can you relate to Paul? It seems it's only reserved for the leaders, for Pastor Kevin, for Jacob Heath, for the elders, but not me. Is it possible that what Paul is saying is, and his goal is, not for the believers at Colossae to identify with him and his leadership because of his suffering, but what he's really saying is that he wants them to know that he identifies with them because he suffers. You see, the church suffers, has known that from the very beginning. And Paul is saying, I identify with you because I suffered you. In Acts chapter 8, as the church began in downtown Jerusalem, Restoration Church in Jerusalem, uh, uh, the people were coming to Christ by the thousands. And in the midst of the congregation, there was a man named Stephen. And Stephen was a table waiter, so to speak. He was a, a deacon. He waited on tables. And the Holy Spirit filled him to speak a message to the non-believing Jews. And he gave a kind of a history, a synopsis of the history of Israel, what God and what God was doing. And then he brought it all from Moses up to Jesus Christ. And when it came to Christ, the Jews had it. They went postal. They became hostile. Again, this is that turbulence that broke out. And they stoned Stephen. And in the midst of that, there was this young man named Saul. That's his Hebrew name. His Roman name is Paul. He had two names. And it wasn't that when he was converted, he was then called Paul. He was both a Jew and a Roman citizen. He had two names. It was common at that time. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Not the leadership, the church. And they were all scattered throughout the regions in Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them. To prison. Now, as we consider this matter of Christians and suffering, the church is no stranger to it. The church came under attack almost immediately. And even though the leadership stayed behind in Jerusalem, the church, the rank and file of the church was scattered. They were preaching the word of God, and Paul followed them and attacked them. House after house after house. The church knows what it means to suffer, and the leadership identifies with the church in its suffering. Now, if that's true in Judea, it was also true outside Judea among the Gentiles as well. Things did not change. 
in First uh, Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, uh, I'll get there, um, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So it's not just in one particular place at one time. It just happened to be that the Jews who were coming to Christ and witnessing to fellow Jews experienced suffering. No, you leave Judea, you go out into the Gentile world, and the church encountered the same thing. Gentiles experienced suffering at the hands of the Gentiles in the same way as Jewish believers did to their Jewish countrymen. And then Peter sums it all up by saying in uh, 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So you get this, as we struggle with the matter of Christians and suffering, it is not reserved to any particular group within the church or any time or place. It is universal. So this causes us to be able to relate to Paul when he says, I am suffering. Suffering was what the church shared in common with Christ, the leadership, and one another. So now this leads to a series of some questions that need to be answered. You're probably thinking, and the wheels are turning in your mind. And here's the first question. If I become a Christian, will I suffer? Will I? Let's cut the cloth. Let's get to the chase. It's either yes or no, will I or not. You know, I came into your church, have your coffee, was greeted, sang some wonderful songs, I shook hands, and now you're talking about suffering. And I need to ask you that question. If I become a Christian, am I going to suffer, yes or no? The best I can tell you at this point is maybe. Why maybe? Well, uh, the very basic rudimentary understanding of salvation comes with this confessional component. Paul, who wrote, we believe, this prison epistle from Rome, later was released, and the church was established in Rome, and he writes his letter to the believers at Rome, and in Romans 10, 9, and 10, he talks about the two-sided aspect of salvation. There's two sides to this coin. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you get what that involves? Confession. With what? Your mouth. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Did you know that faith speaks? When God revealed his word to the prophets in the Old Testament, he revealed it into their hearts and in their mouths. They were supposed to utter what God revealed to him. Did you know when you are saved, the same thing happens? You are to confess. You are to mouth it. You are to express it. You are to make it known. There's no such thing as a silent Christian. We are never born spiritually mute. That We cannot express, we cannot communicate our faith to others. It comes with our belief. So, if someone were to ask you, 
Are you a Christian? No, unless you're going to deny Christ outright, you might simply confess with your mouth, yes, I identify with Jesus. You might have a chance to elaborate on that. Well, what does that mean to be a Christian? Well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I put my trust in him to save me from all of my sins. That's what I mean by identifying with Christ. Did you know that that and that alone might get you in trouble? That confession might evoke a hostile response from someone, so I can't say you would never be persecuted. I can't say that because I understand the dynamics of salvation has that confession built into it, which means that there could be a response. But who wants to sit on the, on the fence post? Maybe. <laughs> that doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for me. Let's make it positive. Let's make it a yes, but how do we get there? Well, we want to clarify the question a little bit better. So here's the, the next question. If I become a Christian, who? And there's some dots that are filled in by these bullets. If I become a Christian, who is committed to Christ and his people, preserves, protects, and proclaims the word of God, seeks to grow deeper in relationship to Christ, remains steadfast in the faith, then will I suffer? Now, before I give you the answer... Let's take a look at these qualifiers. Was Paul really committed to Christ? I, I, we can say, well, yes, he was, but he tells you he is. In uh, this stewardship of God's word, he tells you what's in the word that he's a minister of. As the text goes on to say, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Well, what is the word of God that we should know? What is it? The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know what the word of God is intended to convey that Christ should be in you. That's the essence of God's word. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is committed to that, that Christ should be in you. That's your hope. That's where glory lies. Now, in ages past, in the Old Testament economy, God made his presence known in a tent called a tabernacle and later in a building in the Holy of Holies. <coughs> Where was God present? In the Holy of Holies. That presence was safeguarded by a nation, the nation of Israel. So if a Gentile who was not a Jew wanted to come into the presence of God, he would have to become a Jewish proselyte. He would have to become a Jew to come into the presence of God. <coughs> this is how Israel understood God's economy of how people enter into God's presence, especially if you are outside the nation of Israel. But the mystery was this, which God kept 
a secret, did not reveal that this was not the permanent state of affairs. This was just a foreshadowing of the greater reality yet to come. And this is the mystery which is now being fully published and made known. That what God really intended was not to be present in the Holy of Holies, but to be present in His Son in your heart. That's the real message that had been kept secret as a mystery, now fully revealed. The real intent is for Christ to be in you and ideally to be in everyone. That's the goal. That's the essence of the Word of God. And that's the mystery now fully revealed. And in fact, Paul can reduce this into one single word. Chapter 2, verse 2, that the hearts may be encouraged, uh, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. For Paul, Christ was the center of his entire universe. Everything, the church, salvation, the future, glory, revolved around Christ. Was, Christ com was Paul committed to Christ? Absolutely. Did he suffer for his commitment? Yes, he did. But he was also committed to the people of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want you to know how much, how deeply I am striving and anxious for you. You've never seen me before, but my heart is for you. He's never been in that Lycos Valley where there are a number of churches emerged. One was Colossia, one was Laodicea, and Hierapolis. He was in Ephesus, but as a result of his ministry in Ephesus, and then we're being equipped and going into that valley and bringing the gospel. One was Epaphras, and he was the one who established the church in Colossae. That does not mean that Paul is not deeply committed to them. You see, the church suffers only insofar as it is drawn into fellowship with one another. The pattern of church life is marked from the very beginning again in Acts chapter 2 as people in Jerusalem came to Christ. What did they do? Did they just go on their way? No, it says in chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, to, uh, dis uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church is marked by its fellowship, its deep commitment to one another. Paul is part of that. And he says, I am part of you. Even though you've never seen me, my heart is striving to to be with you and to have fellowship with you. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. It means to be committed to Christ and to his people. 
what about a Christian who preserves, protects, and proclaims the Word of God? Again, coming back to that passage that we're looking at in Colossians chapter 1. In Him we proclaim. In Him we proclaim. Preservation means to maintain something in its original state. And what Paul is doing is he's sharing with those around him that which he also received. He's not changing. He's not altering. He's not uh, casting it aside. He's preserving the word of God in its original transmission that he received. And he's passing on to Epaphras and to everyone else. He's preserving that. And that's something that believers need to be committed to, to preserve the Word of God as it was originally given. <clears throat> Jude, a half-brother of Jesus, underscored that urgency because there are people who will come into the church and try to pervert rather than preserve God's Word. In Jude, verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You get that once for all. You defend that. You don't change it. You don't alter it. You just preserve it. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're perverting what needs to be preserved. And, Paul, and Jude says, you need to step up. This is happening. Unawares, you didn't know, they're, they're in, and they're doing exactly this. You need to step up and you need to preserve God's word. You need to be committed to the preservation and protection of God's word, and you also need to proclaim it. You need to speak. You need to preach the word of God. And those people in Jerusalem who were scattered, they were the ones who went about preaching the word of God. It wasn't reserved for the leadership. They did it to preserve, to protect, to proclaim God's word. Now, if you're a Christian who's committed to Christ, <clears throat> committed to his people, who preserves, protects, and proclaims God's word, and if you seek to grow deeper in relationship to Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Don't think that because Paul can reduce the essence of God's word down to one word, Christ, that the, the, the nature of Christ is easy to understand. Think of an hourglass where there's this huge uh, receptacle of sand, and then it narrows down to one fine point where one grain at a time comes through. Think of knowing Christ as that hourglass. You need to know Christ as your Savior. That's the narrow point of the gospel. But don't be misled in thinking Christ is simple in his nature. There is a vast, infinite amount of sand yet to cultivate. Paul says also in this passage, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> Consider how hard it was for the church to figure out who Christ was. 
You think it's easy? Well, we reduce it into simple terms, but the theology and the doctrine behind it is staggering. You know, it took the church 500 years to figure out the basics. You know, the Council of Nicaea in 325, they had to come to the conclusion from God's word and the leading of the Spirit that Jesus was fully God. Then in the Council of Constantinople in 381, they came to the conclusion that Jesus is also fully man. Fully man. He's not God in a bod. He is human. With a human soul and a human intellect and a human mind. He wasn't just a, a, a shell infused by a divine being. He was really human. And then in the Council of Ephesus in 431, they had to conclude, believe it or not, Jesus was one person. How difficult is that to figure out? What was Jesus, at two persons? Two split personalities? What is he, psychotic? He's one person. And that's not enough. In the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they had to decide whether or not Jesus actually possessed two natures, both divine and human. And all of this was overshadowed by this one great truth that was mind-boggling. They had to consider that Jesus Christ, by his substance, was one God. Yet by his subsistence, Distinct from the Father and the Spirit as the Son. This is called the Trinity. It took centuries to try to unravel this against vying philosophies that said otherwise. And theologians and scholars are still debating these issues, the very identity of who Christ is. So we need to grow deeper in our relationship with Christ. We need to remain steadfast in the faith. Colossians 2, verses 4 and 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Order and firmness are military terms. The order speaks about military soldiers and how they line up for battle. If they're well-trained, they're just not going to show up. And hey, you stand over here, and maybe a few of you get over there. They have a strategy. They know how to line up. I don't know if you were watching the uh, World Cup Championship this morning, the Women's World Cup champ Soccer Championship between the USA and Netherlands. If you recorded it, I'm not going to tell you the, the outcome. But I can tell you this. When the USA team lined up on that field, it was not chaotic. They were four deep, three and three. And it was Heath, Morgan, Rapino in the front line. They were ready. Not just to defend, but to attack. And Paul is saying this, I rejoice seeing your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You're ready for this. You need to be ready, because the enemy is persi persistent. So, if I become a Christian who is committed to Christ and his people, preserves, protects, and proclaims the word of God, seeks to grow deeper in relationship to Christ, remains steadfast in the faith, will I suffer? Well, here's my answer to you. Yes! 
Let's not be wishy-washy. Let's not sit on the fence post any longer. Let's go somewhere with this. Yeah, you are. Does that mean that I might get arrested? That I might get thrown in prison? That I might be beaten? That I might be executed? Well, I can't say it's not going to happen. You might think, well, that kind of suffering would require me getting into a time machine and going back to the early church. No, it doesn't. It requires you going to SeaTac and getting on a plane. That's all it requires. Go on a plane and go to North Korea. Go to Afghanistan. Go to Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Somalia, the Sudan. Guess what you're going to encounter? Just do this. We're doing right now in those countries, and guess what could happen to you? Yeah. Welcome to the early church. Your suffering and mine at the level of the early church is one flight away. That's it. And can you imagine the millions of our brothers and sisters who live out their lives in those countries? Who have to decide, today am I going to church? And what the consequences might be. Yeah. You're going to suffer. Even if you don't get on that plane, you're going to suffer. When I was a student at the University of Northern Colorado, active with Campus Crusade for Christ, I met a girl who was from New York City. And she had not been home since she arrived at the campus uh, since the fall, and it was Christmas, and everyone was leaving to go home to celebrate Christmas with their families. And I said, well, you must be excited because you haven't been home for so long. And she became very sad, and she says, I can't go home. I says, oh, why not? I said, well, you have to understand this. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. We were Orthodox. We were kosher Jews. My mom and dad were this way, my brothers and sisters, and I was that way. And then I came to this campus, and someone told me about Jesus. And I came to see that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was a suffering servant, that he was the conquering hero. He was both. That he fulfilled the prophecies, that all the sacrificial systems of the, of the, of the Old Testament were pointing to his one once and for all sacrifice on my behalf, I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I let my family know. You know what they told me? They said, if you don't deny Jesus, we're going to deny you. She was shocked. She suffered from that. She loved her family, but she loved the Lord too. And she wrote to them, she says, I love you so much. I, I, I rejoice in your presence and in, in your fellowship and to be a family, but I, I can't deny Jesus. So they sent word back to her, say, if you don't deny Christ, we'll never talk to you again. Now, I'm not saying it's typical of every Orthodox Jewish family, but this is what happened to her. And she wrote back and said, well, I cannot do that. I cannot deny Christ. No more communication. It all stopped. And she told me that a friend, a relative, told her that her family had a funeral. And they buried her in effigy. 
she started crying. I died to them because of Christ. Oh, yeah. Land of the free, home of the brave. Someone may not kill you, but they'll kill your relationship. That could happen. There's going to be suffering to some extent if you are the Christian that we were just talking about. So then the question is, well, why do Christians suffer anyway? Can't we just drink Coca-Cola, join hands, and learn to sing in harmony with one another? What's the big deal? Why do people get so upset with Jesus anyway? Didn't he heal people and do nice things for people? Why did people go postal with him? Well, we suffer because of who Christ is and what he has done. What are some of the things that he did that got people so upset? Well, here's a sample of many. He came to Jerusalem, and there was a pool, and there were many invalids surrounding the pool, and the story was that when the, the waters were disturbed, the first one in the pool got healed. Well, there was an invalid for 38 years who obviously was too poor to have an assistant to help pick him up and put him in the pool. And Jesus was talking to him, and then he healed him. Good on you. That's great. That's a good thing to do, right? But then Jesus told him to do this. He told him, pick up your pallet and go home. Well, it happened to be on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath police were out in force. As soon as that man picked up his pallet, he said, oh, no, you don't. You broke the Sabbath. You're a Sabbath breaker. That's work. Got all upset. And it says in John chapter 5, verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, that's bad enough. <laughs> it's what he said next. That caused them to go berserk. And Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Oh boy, they heard that. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's who he claimed to be, as well as what he was doing that was just upsetting the apple cart. And he kept doing it. In John 8, 58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And to a Jew that harks back to Moses in the wilderness, in the burning bush. And Moses asked, who shall I say is sending me to Pharaoh? And Yahweh said, I am. And Jesus is saying, I am. They got it. And he responded again, where's the stones? We've got to kill this guy. Hostility and rage. He did it again. He made another statement in John 10, verse 30. This guy doesn't stop. He said, I and my father are one. <laughs> what? So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of the, them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. We've got to kill you! And guess what we are saying about Jesus to this world? I and my Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. My father's been working until now, and I have been working. We say this about Jesus to everyone. And guess what the response will be? They may not pick up a stone, but they may hate you. And what did he do 
that were so awful, so offensive, and it reverberates this very day. Not only was he a Sabbath breaker, but the big thing he did was that he died. Can you imagine that? He died on a cross. That's so offensive to everyone. It's a source of offense. Paul summarized this to the Corinthians. He said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For the Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. Now, in our age of pluralism, where we have moved Christ and demoted him from the center of the universe to orbiting a concept of God along with other religions, the notion of Christ dying on a cross seems to promote a God of wrath who demands blood sacrifice. Now there are other religions who say we've got something more sophisticated, more appealing than that, you can come into communion with God, who or whatever that is. Whether it's one God or 330 million gods, whether God is the cosmos, if you are God, I am God, or God is nothing more than that ultimate ground of being, the way to that is through personal devotion, intuitive knowledge, ritual works, but nothing like this offensive blood-letting sacrifice on a cross by God's own Son. That sounds so narrow-minded, so unnecessary, when there are alternative ways to God. It seems so offensive. But we need to understand that at the cross, both God's wrath and love are being played out together. Which makes Christ's death so unique and efficacious for our salvation. So it's because of who Christ was or is and what he's done. It's also because people still need to be saved. People still need to hear the gospel about Christ. You know, he gave us marching orders. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, when does the age end and suffering come to an end? Well, after all the nations have heard the gospel. How well have we done? Well, Jesus tells us that this is a guaranteed sign that the end is near. In Matthew 24, he goes over a number of signs that are indicators, but there's one that's proof positive. He says this, chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Missiologists estimate that we are about at 95% reaching every nation for Christ. There is a remainder of uh, 5 to about 8% left over who have yet to hear the word of Christ for the first time. They are living in a narrow belt from China through Indonesia and around the Middle East. It's called the 1040 window. Uh, Latitudes 10 degrees, 40 degrees north. 
And in that window, the majority of people have yet to hear Christ for the first time. But it's happening. I tell that to freshmen and they get uneasy. Because they got plans. You see, they, I said, do you want Jesus to come? And they say, yes! But not now. I still want to go to college. I want to get married. I want to travel. I want to have a career. I want to have fun. Then Jesus could come when he's my age, I guess. <laughs> After all the gas has been burned up in the tank, yeah, then Jesus can come. But Jesus is saying, I will come. And it will bring an end to suffering when all the nations have had the opportunity to hear about me. I'll finish the deal. I'll end it. So, uh, why do Christians suffer? Because of who Christ is and what he's done? Because people still need to hear the gospel. Now, what are the incentives for becoming a Christian? I've got to go fast because you've got to get home. First incentive is this. Future outcomes outweigh present suffering. We have it hard now, but compared to the glory yet to reveal from us, it's nothing in comparison. Paul speaks of this in Romans again. Uh, to the believers there in Romans 8, beginning with verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, your suffering is real, but by comparison, compare your present suffering to the glory, no comparison whatsoever. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 14, Paul says essentially the same thing. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You look to the future. Keep your eyes on the prize. You aren't home yet. You have yet to finish the, 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 cross the finish line. Paul knew that was coming for him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talked about having fought the good fight, and he's looking forward to the award that's going to be given to him, the crown of righteousness. He's looking forward to that. And not for him alone, but for all who love Christ's appearing. You need to look and consider the future outcomes outweigh present suffering. And Christ's sufficiency enables us to suffer. If God appoints us and calls us to suffering, he will certainly be there to provide the strength and the power and the wisdom and the knowledge to endure it. Paul says this again in his letter he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There are three prison epistles. One is this one, the other to the Ephesians, and another one to the Philippians. And to the Ephesians, he says the same thing. But it's not on his behalf, it's for them, the believers in Ephesus. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, 
And you may be going through some great difficulty or hardship. You may be suffering. And you may feel, this is impossible. I don't have the strength. I, don't, I can't endure it. This is overwhelming to me. Especially because of Christ. Because I'm a Christian, I am going through these hard times. Well, so did Paul. So did the church. The church at Colossae. The church at Ephesus. The believers at Philippi. And they were all bakers, you know, Philippi. And to the Philippians, the third prison epistle, he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. Now, raise your hand if you've ever defaulted to that verse in your life in the midst of some circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who does what? Strengthens me. He's not a dormant, passive gene that happens to be present in your life but doesn't do anything. He's present to strengthen you to enable you. But another incentive is that God changes us in the presence of suffering. We're different people. We change our view about suffering itself. See, if you see suffering as just punishment, you can become resentful and bitter. But the apostles, the leaders, the people who were suffering did not see suffering as punishment. They saw suffering as a privilege, as an honor. When Peter and company were beaten and told not to speak about Christ any longer, they came back to the church to report what had happened. And in chapter 5, verse 22, uh, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for for the name. They were counted worthy. What an honor. I got beaten up for Jesus. Wow. I am so blessed. Who would have think that that could happen to me? Paul also saw the suffering as a means to enter into a deeper fellowship with Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, another prison epistle, by the way. Uh, he says this. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. May share his sufferings. I'm drawn more deeply into the person of Christ as I suffer for him. I understand I'm suffering with him. And all of us who suffer together for the cause and the person of Jesus Christ, we become as wartime a band of brothers who become knit together. We're drawn closer together by our common suffering and by seeing how God is working through our lives. God changes us in the presence of suffering. God uses suffering to build His church. It was said that the martyrs of the church, martyrs, their blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You kill a Christian, another Christian sprouts up. You, you annihilate a church, 20 grows up. Where the word is spread, suffering follows, but then the word continues to grow. Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi and he's preaching the gospel and he casts out uh, a demon who was allowing a servant woman to have some unusual insights. And the men who were making money off of that got really upset and they went to the leaders and said, this guy needs to be punished. And so they beat him, 
threw him into prison. And in prison, uh, he's rejoicing for his sufferings. And Elvis Presley has nothing on these apostles. That's the original jailhouse rock. And in that suffering, in that prison, the jailer, a Gentile, a Philippian, asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul led him to the Lord. But not only him, his entire household. You see, God built the church through sufferings. Paul was suffering in a prison. Well, good. The jailer gets to come to Christ. Paul's suffering in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And after two years, Paul says, the household of Caesar greets you. Why? Because these soldiers were chained to me. They were my captive audience. I was allowing visitors to come, and I was preaching the gospel, and these guys heard it. God builds his church through suffering. Lastly, would you consider the suffering involved by not becoming a Christian? Have you considered that? There are many verses, by the way, that relate to this. They're pretty scary. But I'll share with you one. It's in 2 Thessalonians. And it says this. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Do you realize what's going to happen if you reject Christ to your grave? the suffering that awaits you, and you rejected Christ because you did not want to suffer the current light afflictions for being a Christian. You thought that you would get off easy, and you won't. If the glory that awaits the Christian is far in excess of the suffering that we have today, I can guarantee you the suffering that awaits those who reject Christ far and away exceeds any suffering you would have ever experienced by being a Christian. Yeah. That's in Scripture. Sobering to think about that. So let me ask you the last question. Will you become a Christian today? I mean, let's honor the 4th of July. We're free. No one coerces you. No one is compelling you. How about freely choosing to be saved today? I mean, even God gives us free will to the extent where we can choose to accept or reject His own Son, Jesus Christ. How about acting on that freedom in the most positive, beneficial way that glorifies God and brings glory into purview for you.
What could possibly keep you from putting your trust in Jesus Christ right now, right here, today, regardless of what someone might think of by that decision? Well, the answer is yours. I don't have an answer for that. Will you become a Christian today? Let's pray.